We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 20. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Oropagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Reed Kappel. I have the joy of serving as the campus pastor here of the Olathe Campus of Christ Community, and it's a, it's a joy to be with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Acts 17. Uh, that's where we're going to be camped out this morning. Uh, but before we jump into God's Word, I just want to pray for our time together. Uh, so let's go before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. <laughs> Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we pause in this moment asking that you would, through the power of your Spirit, um, awaken us to the truth of your Word. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken that you have made yourself known to us. And so, Lord, in this time, would we hear from you? Would, you? would you challenge us, comfort us, convict us? And would you bring us to an understanding of who you are and who we are in light of you? We ask for your blessing on the hearing and the teaching of your word. And we pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Uh, so uh, last, last week, um, Megan, my wife and I, we celebrated our 13-year wedding anniversary, which was a ton of fun. Uh, and, and as we were kind of thinking back on like our first year of marriage, uh, I was reminded of how like just months after we were married, uh, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky, so new city. And, and within two months, I found a way to break my left uh, clavicle uh, in severely in two different places. Uh, and I was doing so playing ultimate frisbee, so I'm really cool. Uh, but, I, but I did so, it was so significant of a break that I needed uh, surgery. And so I met with an orthopedic surgeon. He concluded that the best way to fuse the bone together was to take bone marrow from my kneecap and fuse the bone together and then attach a metal plate and six screws, which are still in my left clavicle. So I am bionic, okay? And so it was an intense surgery. And as I came out of surgery, obviously my entire left side was kind of limited. I, I couldn't really walk because of my left knee, and my left arm was pretty uh, limited as well, which meant I couldn't use a crutch to walk around. And so literally for like three weeks, I was utterly useless, which was like a downgrade from my normal status of like basically useless, okay? And so, so Megan was reminding me, like she had to wheel me around in our, in our computer desk chair, and I had it to kind of hobble around. I was like, this is ridiculous. And I went back to get my sutures taken out about three weeks later, and I asked the surgeon, who I said, do you mind me asking, like, why didn't you take the bone marrow from my right knee? Because then I could have used a crutch, you know? And, and I'm waiting for him to explain, like, well, there's very good reason for this, and he just looks at me and he goes, huh. <laughs> that's a good idea. I'll, I'll do that next time. And I'm looking at him, and it's just like, this guy who has more degrees than Fahrenheit, is smarter than I will ever be, makes more money than I can count to, has all of this knowledge and experience, and looks at me and is like, huh, I'll do that next time. And he, and, I, and he said, like, I was just on that side of the table, I just didn't want to walk around. 
I came to find out this surgeon was one of the well, most well-known prominent orthopedic surgeons in the country at this time. This guy who's brilliant, has all this experience and knowledge, and yet he couldn't connect all of that knowledge to his patient's needs, to the situation that his patient was in. And, and I share this story not, not to like, you know, like completely illegitimize the orthopedic surgeon uh, field, but to say that there's a sense in which if, if you are not a follower of Jesus, there's a sense in which you identify with Christians in the same way. That your view of Christians is kind of like my surgeon. There's a lot of knowledge, a lot of biblical knowledge, a lot of experience, but there isn't really a connection between all of that knowledge, all of that experience to the needs, the situations, and the questions that you are asking. And if you're a Christian, you probably in some ways maybe identify with that as well. And so Christianity, when we think about it, is there a sense in which it actually speaks to the current cultural moment we're in? For those of you who are not Christians, perhaps you're asking that question. Is there any relevance? Can the Christian faith speak to our modern world? Or is it just unrelatable at best or unnecessary and unhelpful at worst? Does the Christian faith have any relevance on our modern world, and can it speak to our current contemporary culture? And, and it's these questions that I believe are kind of responded to and asked and answered in the book of Acts chapter 17. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. And we've been going through the book of Acts in our series on scent, and we come to Acts 17, which is this quintessential moment of the Apostle Paul taking his knowledge of who Jesus is in the Christian faith and connecting it to, applying it to the cultural situation in Athens. Now, just to kind of give some context of where we are, so Paul has entered Athens, and Athens, just kind of a little history, Athens was conquered by Rome in the year 146 BC, and yet during this time, it remained a free city because the Romans loved Greek culture. They loved Greek art, Greek philosophy, Greek architecture, and so they kept Athens as a free city, but as, as it kind of continued to grow, the city kind of became empty in many ways. In fact, one commentator describes Athens at this time in this way. He says, Athens was empty because she was living on the memories of the past. In philosophy, she simply repeated the echoes of men long gone. Her art was no longer innate. It was no longer an innate overflow, but a lingering reflex. It was such a city that Paul came to, proud, glorious to the eye, but dead. And so this is the city that Paul comes into and seeks to connect the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, to the questions, the culture that he finds himself in, in Athens. And what I want us to see is how Paul engages the Athenians in this kind of gospel dialogue. And the first thing we see in Paul is that he has this understanding of culture. Paul has an understanding of the culture, particularly of the Athenian culture. And, and one thing, just, to, just so we're kind of clear on terms, when I say culture, uh, what I refer to is kind of the, the overall social, political, spiritual, moral, intellectual climate that we all find ourselves in, okay? Culture is not something that we purely consume or observe from a distance, but rather culture is something that we are all complicit in, that we all create and are a part of. So there's not really a category for someone who is outside of culture looking at it. We are all complicit in creating and experiencing the culture that we all swim in. So that's kind of what I mean by culture. 
And, and so when Paul has an understanding of the culture, that, that's what I'm getting at. And we see that in verse 16 as Paul enters Athens and Luke records for us, it says, now while Paul was waiting for them, referring to Silas and Timothy, his two buddies, missionary buddies, uh, he was waiting for them at Athens. Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So what we need to see here is that Paul, he doesn't enter into Athens with his gospel guns blazing, you know? He doesn't put up a soapbox and begin preaching. He pauses and he observes and he listens to the cultural and religious and spiritual climate of the Athenians. And, and this is so crucial. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is a helpful practice for all of us because we all tend to really quickly speak at people, speak over people, and we don't do a really great job of, of listening and understanding. Paul comes in, rather than just giving answers, he begins to first understand the questions being asked of the culture. And for those of us who would identify as followers of Jesus, we don't do the best job of entering into conversations with people of differing viewpoints by listening and understanding the questions they ask. We give an answer to a question we think they're asking, which doesn't surprise me that this bumper sticker exists. That if Jesus is the answer, I want a different, I want a new question. And, and yes, is Jesus the answer? Well, yeah, I can say yes, but, but if we don't understand the questions that our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, our family members are asking, then we are not doing a great job in connecting the dots of the Christian faith to the questions of our culture. But Paul... Paul beautifully models this so well in the way in which he enters in. You see, he sees the hollow and destructive idols that had plagued and enslaved the Athenians. And Luke says that Paul was provoked to speak. That's the strong, visceral response. It's only used one other place in the New Testament. And Paul can't help but speak out against these idols, not because they're wrong, which they are, but because he sees that they have been enslaved by these lesser things and Paul must speak. Now, a quick little word about idols, because you're probably thinking, okay, in your, in your earlier uh, intro, you were saying, does the Christian faith have anything to say to our modern contemporary culture? And you're probably wondering, by talking about idols, that's not really helping the case, like idols really, like this is 2018, this doesn't really relate to our culture now. And, and just a quick word about idols is that we have, we have to be careful that we don't see idolatry simply in terms of the worship of relics or statues or artifacts. That may have been the form of idolatry in the Greco-Roman world, but the function of idolatry continues and is the exact same in our culture today. Sure, we may not find ourselves bowing to relics, but we do all find ourselves giving our lives to something that isn't God, building our lives around things that demand things of us in hopes that they will meet our needs. Idolatry, really, a very simple definition is this. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. And, and this actually comes from the New City Catechism, which is a phenomenal resource I would recommend if you're six or 66 years old. A phenomenal resource in gathering and understanding kind of the Christian truth and theology. But, but basically, what idolatry is, is this idea of taking seemingly innocent things it doesn't have to be bad, it doesn't have to be destructive, but taking innocent things and making them ultimate things. It's taking something that is good and expecting it to be God. That's really what idolatry is. And so you don't have to bow to a relic or a statue to be an idol worshiper. We all have things that we tend to bow our lives before. 
And when this is the definition of idolatry, well, I think we can all, regardless of our religious experience, admit that we can find ourselves guilty of idols in some way. We can turn our careers into an idol. We can turn our hobbies into idols. We can turn our phones, our devices, we can turn children into idols. None of these are inherently destructive, but when they are elevated to the status that they were never designed to be, that's where we find trouble. Because they were never intended to bear the weight of the desire for contentment within the human heart. That is something reserved for God alone. But again, going back to Paul, notice how he engages the Athenians about their idolatry. He doesn't just condemn them, but rather he finds a cultural point of entry and engages them about the one true God and their idolatry. So look with me at verses 23 through 25. Paul says, so he's speaking, he's in front of the Areopagus, a collection of religious and social elites, and he's speaking to them about his beliefs and worldview. And Paul says, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, what's so great to to notice is that Paul, he is engaging not just in a monologue, but very much a dialogue. he, He is conversing with the Epicureans and the Stoics, the philosophers of the day, And he's showing them that even on their own claims, their own worldview, their own understanding of the gods, that their own worldview is not sufficient to explain the world that they know. He's basically saying, look, you're way too smart to believe in this. Your own worldview and understanding of the gods can't make sense of the world that you inhabit. He doesn't just speak. Paul doesn't just speak at the Athenians. He doesn't just speak past the Athenians, but he speaks with them. Luke even shows us this as he says that Paul was reasoning with the Epicureans and Stoics, that he conversed with them. It was not a monologue preaching at them, but very much a back and forth conversation. Paul was trying to show the hollowness of their idols by engaging them in conversation, but he did so first by understanding the culture and listening to the questions they asked. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, I think a lesson we can take from Rabbi Paul in this moment is this, that we need to be people who listen to the culture and not just loathe it. We need to listen to the culture and not just loathe it. And what I mean by that is that when you encounter or experience or observe something within our culture, again, that we're all complicit in creating, when you observe something that offends you, rubs you the wrong way, that you would even say is wrong, Are you pushed to a place of complacency or a place of compassion? Are we a people that when we look at the things in our culture that are wrong, we would say are outside of God's design, do we look at that and say our country's going to hell in a handbasket? Or do we look at these things with compassion and say, oh, I see the emptiness and the futility of these idols that our culture is enslaved to and that I am enslaved to? Do we see our, our culture, understand it, listen to it, and does it push us towards compassion? If Christians are only known for condemning and critiquing culture, then what we will find is that we will either be irrelevant to a listening and watching world, 
or we will actually be irreverent to the God who loves this created world and the people within it. Can we be a people who listen and not just load the culture? But for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, for those of you who are just not sure where you stand, can I at least suggest this? Can you at least be willing to consider that you have bowed the, your hearts to an idol? That you have built your life around something that makes demands of you that you can't complete and makes promises that it can't fulfill? Is it possible, too, that this thing that you have built your life around is not sufficient to either meet your needs or make sense of the world that you inhabit? So, Paul has an understanding of culture. But as we continue on, we see that Paul also, in his, in his proclaiming of the gospel, he seeks common ground. Paul is seeking common ground. Now, as I mentioned, he doesn't just come in and just start speaking to the Athenians. He listens, he understands their questions. He engages in a back and forth discourse with the Epicureans and the Stoics. And, and this is so important for us because as I mentioned, we tend to wanna to talk at people instead of talk with people. We, we typically uh, desire to be understood rather than to be people who understand, especially in social media, which that's a whole other message. But Paul, as he engages the Athenians, he is working diligently to seek a common ground with his listeners, and he does so by quoting from the pagan poets of the day, the, the singers, the songwriters, and the top 40 charts in Athens. And we see that in verses 26 and 28. So Paul says, starting in verse 26, and he made from one man, so this is Paul's message to the Athenians, and he, referring to God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. And that word feel, it really means more like, like searching like in a, in a dark room, so it's not like emotion, but it's actually searching for, grasping for, feeling their way toward God, toward him, and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, and this is where Paul quotes from one of the pagan poets, for in him we live and move and have our being. And as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So rather than coming in and telling the Athenians that they are entirely wrong, that everything that they believe is wrong and that they have to embrace Jesus and then they'll be right, Paul instead seeks out common ground by showing that there is some sense of truth even in the words that these pagan poets are declaring. Which is another way of saying that what Paul is, is declaring to the Athenians and to us is that everybody, everybody gets part of the story right. It's not just this binary thing like, well, you either believe in all lies or all truth, but rather what Paul is saying in affirming the words of these poets is that everyone gets part of the story right and by Paul understanding that, he enters in and he shows, common, he seeks common ground by essentially quoting from the equivalent of like Chance the Rapper and Taylor Swift, like these modern kind of songwriters and people of influence, sort of. I don't know if it's the exact one for one, but Paul is seeking common ground as he is quoting from the pagan poets, which illustrates that Paul had a working knowledge of the culture. So again, what is something we can take from this lesson? this exchange between Rabbi Paul and the Athenians. What I would suggest, and for followers of Jesus, 
is this. Can we connect with culture and not just consume it? When it comes to our culture and all the things that come with it, the art, the entertainment, the literature, the sports, all of it, can we be a people who connect with culture and not just consume it? There's nothing inherently wrong with enjoying the art, the music, the literature, the sports of our culture. But I I believe that there, there ought to be a different posture for the follower of Jesus, that we shouldn't just consume culture but that we ought to be a people who connect with it so that we can be in tune with it, or in touch with it, not in tune with it. There's a difference between being in tune with culture where there's no distinction whatsoever for the follower of Jesus and the world that we live in. That ought not to be the case. But neither should it be the case that we are so far removed that we have nothing to say, no relevance whatsoever, and we are entirely unrelatable. Can we connect with culture and not just consume it? Because I think we do. We have to guard ourselves from these two extremes. One, of just complete blind consumption, where we're not even thinking critically about what we're observing. Or, on the other hand, just complete condemnation and critique, where we just think that we have this posture of being outside of culture, which we don't. Again, we are all complicit in the creation of culture. And so what this means, to connect with culture, not just consume, it means that we should read the Bible along with the Wall Street Journal. That, that we should sing hymns together and listen to Imagine Dragons. That we should be engaging culture, not for the sake of consumption, and not just to show, hey, I'm hip and cool, I'm up with the, the, the times. Like, that's not the point. But rather to show that we understand the culture. We know the questions our culture is asking. And we can contextualize and connect the dots of who Jesus is and what he's done to the questions, the needs, the desires of our culture. Now, let, let me give a case study of this. In the last 10 years, it seems like our culture has become obsessed with zombies, okay? Like, I mean, there are like zombie movies all over, there's zombie television shows, there's zombie video games, zombie literature. Like somebody took Pride and Prejudice and rewrote it, incorporating zombies. It's called Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. It's, it's a thing, people. So we can look at that and say, how grotesque, how morbid, how dark must our culture be to be obsessed with these things? Now, there may be truth to that. But rather than just loathing culture, rather than just kind of being a consumer of it, can we pause and step back and say, why is our culture obsessed with the living dead? What are the questions, what are the assumptions, what are the desires that are are seen in this obsession? We may look at this and say, man, our culture is really consumed and interested with like the end times. Our culture is interested in this idea of life after death or the trajectory of human history. What does it mean to be fully human? And instead of just critiquing it, can we understand the questions behind it and meet our brothers and our neighbors, our coworkers and friends in the questions that they're asking? Now, if you're not a Christian, I think the same principle should apply to you is that you ought not to be a person who just mindlessly consumes culture. We ought to be aware of the things that are forming us and shaping us because culture is not just something we consume, It is something that forms us. That we don't just shape culture, but it shapes us. And we know this to be true because the things we own oftentimes end up owning us. So are you aware of that? Are we aware of that? The influence of culture on us. Okay, so we've seen Paul engaging the Athenians in his understanding of culture, in his seeking of common ground. But Paul also begins to point out the gaps. 
So, so hear me say, Paul, in his attempts to understand culture and his attempts to seek common ground, he's not just trying to show how cool he is, like, hey, I've read the pagan poets, are you impressed? He's not just trying to show the Athenians, these cool kids, that he can hang with them, but rather, we see Paul engaging so that he might point out the holes, the gaps in their thinking. Paul is not capitulating the culture, he's not giving in to the culture and just emulating it perfectly, but neither is he just critiquing it and condemning it wholesale from a distance. Paul meets them on their turf, but he still challenges them, and he still calls them to repentance and to faith. He challenges the thinking of the Epicureans, who had this belief that God was absent, But he also challenges the thinking of the Stoics who believe that God was in everything. And so in this, in Paul's exchange, he is affirming the goodness of their search for God while also challenging and showing them that there are some holes and gaps in their thinking. And if they continue in this way of thinking, they will find that the God who is nearer than you realize will actually be further away if you continue to live with these gaps for these idols. And Paul says this in verse 29. Speaking of God, he says, being then God's offspring, his creation, being made in his image essentially, we ought not to think that the the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What Paul is basically saying here is this. You guys claim to worship the best and biggest and truest gods out there, and yet you find yourselves worshiping products, materials that you've created, and that are far less beautiful and complex than your very existence and being as humans. And he's showing them the futility, the silliness of this. He's like, you guys are far too smart for this. You claim to be worshiping the truest and best gods, and yet you are bowing before something far less complex, far less beautiful than yourself. Your gods don't match up with your understanding and experiences of the world. He enters into their worldview and shows that even on their own terms, it can't make sense of the longings of their heart and the experiences that they face. Or to put it in our more kind of modern context, so many of us find ourselves buying into the cultural narratives that say, you must live for these things. You you must consume this. You must build this kind of career. You must purchase this kind of car. You, You must sleep with this person. You must own this phone, create this home, all these things. We buy into them thinking that this is what will satisfy us. And yet we find after all of this, that the law of diminishing returns still applies to the greatest pleasures that humans can experience. There's a moment that comes, this crushing moment in all of our lives when we realize that the idols of our culture can't keep the promises they make and that we cannot complete the demands that they put upon us. But rather than stepping back and questioning, well, I wonder if I'm living for the right thing, we just turn to something else in hopes that this will remove this kind of desire for more. But it never happens. But again, Paul doesn't let the Athenians remain in their cycle of idolatry and diminishing returns. He lovingly but boldly tells them of a greater God, of a greater way, 
of the truth of the God who is nearer than they could realize. The truth of a God who will do something definitively about injustice, evil, and death itself. Which is why Paul builds all the way to verse 30. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people, all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, referring to Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And it is at this very moment that Paul's listeners bow out, at least many of them. And, and, and this is still true in our day. You know, it's okay to talk about God in a general sense, in kind of an ethereal spiritual sense, but once you start getting specific, and it's even okay to talk about Jesus as long as you keep him sequestered in the realm of morality and nothing more. And, and it's okay to talk about, you know, spiritual ideas and practices, but once you start getting specific and once you start calling me to action and once you start talking about this foolishness of the resurrection, I'm out. And, and, and let me say this, I, I totally get it. And, and I'm sympathetic to that. If that's you, if you're here like, you know, I'm okay with Christianity in general, but man, once you start calling me to action, and once you start talking about the resurrection, I'm just, I'm out. I can't buy that. And, and if that is you, first of all, I'm glad you're here, but let me, let me ask you this question. Because I understand, no one likes being told what to do. No one can really easily buy the story of the resurrection. But can you at least admit that the cultural narratives that we've bought into have also failed to meet the needs of our heart, that they have not actually solved the questions of humanity, that they don't do much in, in remedying our desire for more and our peculiar problem of death? Is it possible that while you may dismiss Christianity, the alternatives don't offer much in return? Whether we recognize it or not, we are all we are all feeling our way towards God, which is the word that, that Paul uses in searching for him and hoping that, that he would bring some kind of answer to these questions. But, but even in our searching, we, we often admit that he's nowhere to be found, which is precisely the description that Justin Vernon, the lead singer of the band Bon Iver, says in his song, Over Soon. He says this, There I find you marked in constellation. There isn't ceiling in our garden and then I draw an ear on you so that I can speak into the silence. We see this desire for, for there to be something more than just the world we observe. I see you marked in constellation, but I have to draw an ear on you so that I can speak into the silence. We're searching, we're feeling our way towards God, but for some of us, it feels like he's nowhere to be found. So as we consider this last practice of the Apostle Paul, what is something we can take from this? And this is what I would say, is that can we be a people, as followers of Jesus, can we be a people who plead with the culture instead of just preach at it? Can we plead with the culture instead of just preach at it? And what I mean by that is that, again, Paul is pointing out the gaps. He's pointing out the flaws in the Athenian worldview, but he doesn't do it from a place of hubris and arrogance and pride. He wants them to be freed of these vain idols. He wants them to find deliverance from this. And, and this must be the posture of a follower of Jesus. Not one that looks at all these bad things in the world and just crosses our arms, but can our hearts break? Can we, like Paul, be provoked to the point of having to say something? Not because we see people who are wrong, 
but because we see people who have been enslaved by lies and hollow gods. There's no place for arrogance or pride or hubris in the declaration of the gospel. Why? Because the very message we are declaring is the message of a king who brings about victory through death, service, and sacrifice. There's no room to boast or be arrogant when your king is a crucified peasant. There's no room for this kind of arrogance. And if you're a Christian, I I hope you hear the the heart of Jesus, the heart of Paul, and and my heart as well, that we don't want to simply declare that, that, that those outside of the church are wrong but that we want, we want people to see the futility of the things that they're pursuing, that we want people to see the gaps in their own thinking, and that the life we are searching for and feeling for is the life offered to us in Christ Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian, what, what I am not telling you, I'm not telling you to suspend your thinking, to suspend your reason, to suspend your questions, but rather, I would ask you to consider the possibility that perhaps you too are living for an idol. That perhaps you too are, you also sense the gaps in your own thinking. And that perhaps you too as well, that you are indeed feeling your way towards God. And I hope that you know that there is a God who made you and who is pursuing you in order that you might feel your way, find your way towards him. For as Paul says in verse 27, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And we know that to be true. We know that to be true because unlike the empty gods in Athens, our God, while he makes demands of us, he meets those demands. And rather than expecting us to find our way to him, he comes down and enters into our world. We find that in Jesus Christ, we find the God who makes demands but lovingly meets those demands for us that we might find our way to him. May we find the God we are all searching for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we do ask that in this moment you would show us how there are so many things we do live our lives for that are empty and hollow. Lord, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, may we see our own idols. Lord, may we be a people who have a posture of of listening to and understanding the questions, the desires of those around us that we might more faithfully connect the good news of who Jesus is to the longings, the desires, and the questions of our world. Lord, would you do this within us? Would you show us the gaps even in our own thinking? And may you reveal to us who you are, the God who is nearer than we could possibly imagine. For you are the one who came to be with us. May you be found to be who you have claimed to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the beautiful ways that we are reminded of how God is nearer than we realize uh, is the communion table. The communion table is this symbolic meal, this this opportunity for us to remember the the body of Christ that was broken for us, the blood of Christ shed to bring us into a right standing with God. It is this tangible way of partaking in the reality that God came near to us, so near in fact that he was able to suffer and die in our place. Far from being like the distant and demanding gods of the Athenians, our God has found us and has pursued us, and draws us to himself. And so, Christ community, we we practice what we call open communion. You don't have to be um, a member of Christ community, but this is a meal for those who've come to trust 
and treasure in Jesus Christ. And so if that is you, we invite you to come. Find a station around the room. We have two in the front and, and four in the back. And so we invite you to come in groups of four to six. Take the bread, hear, hear the server, give the instructions, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and partake together. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, what we'd say is don't take the cup, don't take the bread, but take Christ instead, and then come to the table when you're ready. Come and remember the God who is nearer than we realize. Come when you're ready. Well, I hope, I hope today was, was an encouragement to you, but I also hope it was challenging to you. I hope you felt uncomfortable a little bit this morning, that, and, and particularly in how we see that the things we do so often live for don't match up to the, even the things that, that we make sense of and how we make sense of this world. And so I hope for those of you who are following Jesus, I hope that there has been a challenge for you to not just be a people who give answers to questions we don't understand, but to love and care for and connect with the culture that we find ourselves in. And for those of you who still have questions, not sure about this whole Jesus thing, I hope that there is a sense in which slowly but surely you're finding your way closer and closer to the God who is near. And if you have questions about that, we would love to speak with you. I'll be around. Come find me. I'd love to chat with you. Uh, But as we leave this place uh, into the spheres of influence, the, the callings and vocations, the communities God has called us to, hear these words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 as our benediction. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we all have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, in light of that, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and the saints and members of the household of God. Go in peace. Have a great week.